I remember when I was trying to teach my sons to drive. We would read over the driver's manual to learn the laws of the road. They learned to stop at stop signs, obey the speed limit, slow down in a school zone. They learned to fear the consequences if they broke those laws. There would be fines, they'd get caught, and there would be wrath from their parents. But what I wanted them to really learn was the responsibility and reason for obeying the laws. Fear of the consequences was not enough of a deterrent. To say one has the duty or obligation to obey the laws gives no importance to the idea that one who follows the law because you agree and want to. They could speed down the road because this time they might not get caught, but if they, however, accept the responsibility that they should drive more slowly, in case there's a stray dog or a stray child, because they might injure someone or something, then they were much more likely to follow the laws. In our Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy, Moses is trying one last time to get it across to Israelites why they should follow the commandments of God. The Israelites had wandered in the wilderness for many years. Through Moses, God had given this rowdy crowd a set of basic rules to follow. Though thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have idols. But the Israelites hadn't done so well with obeying the Ten Commandments. Their obedience, when it happened, was based on fear. If I think I'll worship a golden calf, God might punish me, and God did. But fear or simple duty is not enough to keep a person following the laws. Moses and the Israelites had reached the cliffs and were looking down onto the promised land. Moses was not able to take them to the promised land, so his parting words were to explain to the people not just what the laws were, but why they should obey the laws. Notice the words that Moses uses as he presents his case to the Israelites. Obey the commandments by loving the Lord your God. Walking in his ways, you shall live and prosper and be blessed. He hoped that they would obey, not from fear, but for the love of God. He told them to choose to follow the laws because the benefits were life in itself. He cried out, choose life. Choose that which is life-giving. On a side note, it is heartbreaking to see what is happening to the Houston Astros baseball team. They were caught cheating, and the scandal has brought serious ramifications. The team has been heavily punished. They knew the rules and thought they could get away with the cheating. People are angry not because of the rules they broke, but more because they have broken the covenant that if you love the game, you will obey the rules. As a recent article coming out of Harvard says, instead of the question, do we have an obligation to obey the law? We should first ask the more modest question, do we have reasons to obey the law? I believe 
that if we understand the reason for a law, the why, we will try to follow God's law as if our life depended upon it. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, stands on another mountaintop. Jesus gathers his followers overlooking the Sea of Galilee and says the sermon which became known as the Sermon on the Mount. With our passage in Matthew, he's wrapping up the discourse. Earlier, he had preached the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peak. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, etc. Jesus says, you have... You have it been said in the ancient times, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, and this is a very important but, if you even look at another woman with lust, that is adultery in your heart. By amplifying the various Ten Commandments, is Jesus making them more rigorous and stringent? Was this Jesus' intent? Many people over the centuries have thought so. Let's take divorce, for example. And I know two days ago it was Valentine's Day, but now I'm talking about divorce. Imagine how quickly things happen. In Matthew, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. If you marry a divorced woman, you are committing adultery. Well, this puts some of us in a difficult spot, doesn't it? Though the laws have varied over the past 2,000 years, divorce has been not only sinful, but also illegal. Until recently, divorced women were shunned. Divorced women were left penniless and without protection. The church's punishments were as ruthless. In my research, I discovered an article in the New York Times from September of 1973 that proclaimed with great hurrah that divorced people in the Episcopal Church were no longer prevented from participating in the sacraments of the church. This means that if the ga people gathered here represent the national average for divorce, half of us could not receive the communion this morning. So do speed limits serve as a deterrent? It was thought that strict laws were also a deterrent for people getting divorced. But if it was trying to keep divorce from being too easy, let me tell you, there is nothing easy about divorce. Actually, Jesus was not making the law stricter, but adding a sense of compassion and life to the law that existed. Again, let us use the law prohibiting divorce as an example. During Jesus' time, the laws of divorce were heavily skewed against women. A, woman, a man could divorce a woman for simply burning his toast in the morning. The man could then remarry as many times as he cared to. But a divorced woman was still bound to that first husband. If any man married a divorced woman, she, not he, was committing adultery. Divorced women were damaged goods. Jesus added a sense of equity and fairness to the system that already existed. His words allowed divorce to be an even process, 
and to make men as culpable as women. He reinforced the dignity of women and warned against the culture of male privilege. In all things, Jesus believed in doing the most loving thing. With this lens, he clarified the dual responsibilities of a married couple that were considering divorce. In the last half of the 20th century, the Episcopal Church looked at the situation of divorce and said, what is the most loving thing to do in reference to divorce and the divorced people? It was Thomas Jefferson who said that laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. At that becomes more developed, more enlightened as new discoveries are made, new truths disclosed, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances. Institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat that fitted him when he was a boy. Circumstances have changed. The Episcopal Church now strives to do the most loving thing for everyone. You, me, and the stranger off the street, regardless of your marital status, whether you have been baptized or not, you are welcome here. Church came to believe that divorced people need compassion and understanding. We need the power of healing that sacraments offer. We should not be excluded or locked out. So did Jesus change the law of Moses? When Jesus, as he spoke in the Sermon of the Mount, did he strengthen or weaken the law that Moses proclaimed? Jesus said you are committing murder every time you get angry or committing adultery every time you gaze at another and think, boy, she's or he's attractive. I think Jesus made the new law to be unreachable, and that was his point. As much as we try to live a life that is according to the law, we just can't. One bit of anger, one bit of jealousy, or desire for another, and we have broken the law. We will fail to live up to the standards of Jesus. But our intention, our desire to do the most loving thing is what pleases God. We cannot fulfill the law without God's grace. We are all sinners. With that humbling news, we can welcome all sinners to this table. That is you, me, and the stranger. We have chosen to live life by God's grace, not by our own willpower, not by anything we can possibly do, but live life, to choose life, to do the best we can, and then leave the rest to God. We will with God's help. Amen.